Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Populisms, nationalisms, and ethnic and religious chauvinisms stalk the global landscape. Culture wars pervade the political scene, and democracy stagnates, erodes, or is on the ropes at the hands of would-be strongmen the world over. How did we arrive at this historical pass? What is the relationship between the deterioration of social democracy and the rise of various authoritarianisms? And what role does immigration play in both promoting and unsettling social democratic welfare states? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today David Abraham, Professor Emeritus of Law at the University of Miami, and earlier in his career, a historian of 20th century Europe at Princeton. He's the author of the recent Wer gehört zu uns, that is, Who Belongs to Us, Immigration, Integration, and Solidarity in the Welfare State. His first book, The Collapse of the Weimar Republic examines the effort in interwar Germany to create a social democratic welfare state. He's currently, or at least will soon again be, uh, a a visiting scholar at the Advanced Research Collaborative of of the CUNY Graduate Center. So thanks for being with us today, David Abraham. My pleasure. Great to have you. So... Since it seems to me that the concept of social democracy that is so central to your work may not be as familiar to listeners as it once was, maybe we could start by having you say a little bit about the meaning and history of that term. Certainly. And the first thing I would say, it's it's ironic that we have reached the point where the social democratic form of governance seems to be a thing lying so far behind us. Uh, that we need to remind ourselves uh, of what it consisted, because it was, in fact, the primary form of governance in uh, Western Europe and in U.S. and uh, other countries, Canada, Australia, elsewhere. Uh, And it has now been uh, succeeded by that constellation that we call neoliberalism. But back to social democracy. Social democracy enjoyed a long history, uh, beginning with the labor and socialist movements of the mid and late 19th century, uh, a movement that was initially committed to overturning the capitalist order and replacing it with something uh, Marxist or or socialist, if not Marxist, uh, and uh, moving power, both economic and political power, 
uh, to the masses, primarily the working class, which it was assumed would become the demographic uh, majority, as well as uh, the political premier political power. As a demographic matter, the working class never became an absolute majority of society, except for one place in one census. In the 1910 Luxembourg census, uh, those that could be concretely identified as working class were a small absolute majority, but never before, never since, and nowhere else has that been the case. This became crucial a crucial fact because it meant that the working class movement, the socialist parties, their affiliated trade unions had to reach out to other social classes in order to obtain majorities in electoral or democratic or quasi-democratic uh, political systems. This the socialists, social democrats before World War II never succeeded in accomplishing in a uh, in a stable way. There were moments like the Popular Front in, in France, uh, a few years in Weimar Germany, uh, where uh, Social Democrats really um, headed, headed states, headed governments, uh, led economic and cultural program. The real successes of social democracy and uh, here I follow the analysis of my old teacher, Adam Shavorsky, who probably laid this out more effectively than anyone else. The great success of social democracy owes a very large debt to Keynes and to Keynesian economics. Why? Because this enabled social democrats to create a structure based on growth and government intervention in legitimating government intervention and keeping the economy rolling smoothly and flattening out recessions and the like. So social democracy came to represent not only the reallocation of, of resources within society, uh, but to, in the famous metaphor, growing the pie instead of fighting over where the slices would be exactly. So although social democracy never gave up the redistributive effort, it also became centrally implicated in economic expansion, something which in recent years we've seen critiques of from the green uh, position, from the green left position. So social democracy uh, really came into power, not directly into power, but became the dominant force in Europe uh, I would say in Germany, after uh, abandoning 1959, abandoning revolutionary Marxism, uh, similar developments in France with the uh, isolation of the communists from the socialists, um, and in Scandinavia, above all, uh, in, a, in an ongoing way. So the social democratic form of governance relies on uh, coalitions of working class people organized and educated through their trade unions, along with allies uh, following the path of enlightenment, that is to say, uh, liberal middle-class folks. Uh, we see, we've seen in the United States a kind of diluted version of this in the Democratic Party, uh, its apogee being uh, the New Deal. 
where again, uh, unionization levels uh, were higher, uh, working classes almost automatically uh, voted for uh, Democrats or social Democrats. And uh, they were joined by some elements of the clerical classes, small owners, educated people, et cetera. When exactly, well, let, let's take a moment to recount the accomplishments of the social democratic era. Uh, one can measure it as being 30 years long, 60 years long, uh, ending either with the uh, oil shocks of 1973 or the rise of Thatcher and Reagan in the 80s. But in most of the years preceding that, and to a certain extent still in an inertia process in the years since that, the social democratic era vastly reduced inequality, uh, poverty, expanded education, expanded higher education, expanded medical care, created what in the United States uh, came to be called the middle class, working class people living a middle class lifestyle with home ownership and a certain measure of, of uh, savings and uh, various forms of insurance, unemployment insurance and other such things. All this is part of the social democratic inheritance. That, in, that project, of course, had its costs and its exclusions. And maybe we can say a couple of words about each of those. Among the costs was um, the ruthless exploitation of nature uh, in the name of science and progress. Uh, that is something which, as we know, in the last you know, 15, 20 years has come under a lot of criticism. But uh, uh, social democracy was productionist, productivist, mass production, mass commodities, cheaper belief in science, belief in technology, uh, progress, in short. Um, this had its costs on nature. And although we didn't think of it so much at the time, it's become very clear to us since that bordered states were critical to this. Uh, the notion that I am my brother's keeper uh, came to be more widespread with the growth of a liberal enlightened ideology that was very much against discrimination. Uh, it had trouble with gender but we'll, uh, and women's role in the economy, but maybe we can come back to that. But it was certainly based on the idea of America, of the Bundesrepublik, of France. In other words, um, nation states that uh, had very, very low uh, rates of migration, in-migration. Uh, in these years. That was in part due to the uh, so-called Iron Curtain. It was in part due to the then much higher costs of communication and transportation and uh, the non-availability of uh, technologies of simultaneity like the iPhone. Uh, so uh, countries were more encapsulated uh, culturally and uh, politically. This enabled, uh, this is one of the ironies, uh, a growth of uh, solidarity feeling, uh, a civic nationalism, where all right. Americans, apple pie, hot dog, Chevrolet, uh, or in the more sophisticated version, uh, we're all uh, uh, followers of the Habermas notion that we have a civic nationalism, we adhere to the same constitution, we share the rules of public political discourse, 
and civility. We have diverse ideas, but we uh, discuss them together and rationally. All of these mechanisms uh, presupposed a certain measure of homogeneity uh, and uh, and uh, what we used to call uh, in the United States consensus, um, which uh, did narrow. It's true that to um, to have the system function stably, you have to uh, get rid of Nazis in the case of Germany. Um, you have to get them out of the public sphere, uh, which was a slow process, but which was effectively uh, accomplished. Uh, you have to marginalize communists or others who are still calling for revolution, uh, which was also done. Um, uh, or, or they themselves became players, as with the Italian Communist Party, for example. Spanish Communist Party uh, divorced themselves from the Soviet Union uh, and certainly from China, began to be Euro-communists, which meant essentially that they were um, more radical social democrats. Right. So this has been a very valuable kind of overview of social democracy for the last 150 years, really. Um, but you've started to raise some issues that I wanted to ask about a little bit in, you know, to get you to say a little bit more about. And, uh, you know, one of them in particular is the uh, issue of immigration, the immigration and solidarity. I mean, uh, you know, it may be worth noting that the United States, you know, sort of surge towards a social democracy had to do a lot, as you've already said, with the New Deal, and that that took place during a time when there was effectively no legal immigration into the United States. Um, I mean, do you see those things as connected? I mean, the United States has long been seen as a place that uh, by, you know, by socialists as a place that's you know, riven in certain ways by ethnic, religious, other kinds of difference um, that have undermined working class solidarity. So, you know, how do you see these things as being connected? I mean, this is in effect what your most recent book is about. So maybe you could talk about that. Absolutely. So let me um, cite two things. First, um, Werner Sombart, the uh, German sociologist of, of mixed reputation, but nevertheless an astute observer, um, try to answer the question, why is there no socialism in the United States? Now, one might say that the question was mal posé, but when he posed it around the turn of the last century, um, it did seem to be the case, at least, that the United States didn't have anything like a European socialist movement. Uh, people who like that talk about American exceptionalism. Uh, but his argument was that there was no strong socialist movement in the United States because there had been no feudalism. So there's no nobility to uh, throw rotten tomatoes at. Um, slavery and racial uh, uh, conflict, uh, I mean, he never used terms like, like uh, racial capitalism or white privilege, but uh, certainly he suggested that racism divided uh, workers in the United States and uh, uh, undermine solidarity. Uh, and the third thing was high levels of immigration, which at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century were indeed very, very high. In fact, the uh, largest share of the popula U.S. population to be foreign born was around 1912, as I recall. 
a, a figure that uh, we only reapproached uh, in the last uh, three or four years here in the U.S. So, and then if we turn to Europe, um, it's uh, an unhappy thing for liberals, and it must be noted that most social de democrats are also liberals in the sense of a larger philosophy of life. Um, and the countries in Europe with the strongest social welfare systems have been those that were, mo were and are still most ethnically homogenous. Scandinavia is the most obvious example, uh, Austria uh, another. Um, solidarity and diversity have a difficult time uh, thriving together. Uh, so in those years, again, partly because of the Iron Curtain, partly because of the difficulties of transportation and communication, uh, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I would say even, uh, saw more and more calls for economic redistribution amongst populations, which because of the advances of anti-discrimination principles were more uniform. Uh, in the case of Scandinavia, they were also ethnically, uh, remained ethnically very uniform. And in the case of countries that were coming to see more diversity, like Germany, um, uh, it was a very limited uh, diversity um, and was focused on political and legal uh, equality more than on uh, cultural recognition. So the shift, uh, which parallels the uh, growth of migration, uh, which Nancy Fraser and others have discussed, uh, the shift from uh, uh, politics of redistribution to politics of recognition, of welcoming or acknowledging, if not welcoming, the growth of uh, a migrant population, an immigrant population, uh, with initially um, different uh, values, different looks, different religions, uh, et cetera, that um, fairness, liberal principles require uh, the acceptance of difference. I mean, we see this now in the United States. This is a major central theme, perhaps, even of, of uh, uh, liberal progressive politics in the United States now. Uh, this is not, it's not a zero-sum game, but there is a troublesome negative um, correlation between solidarity and diversity. So we, I mean, you talked uh, in your kind of overview of the past of social democracy about this uh, fact that the working class never really became a, a demographic majority. Um, and one question that arose in the course, especially of 20th century development and 20th century history was whether there weren't uh, a bunch of working class people who were now wearing white collars, right? So there was this whole question about, you know, the white collar, the, the new working class, the, the new class, you know, had various kind of designations over the period. And, you know, it strikes me as though there's uh, obviously a differentiation in what was thought at least potentially to be the sort of social base of a socialist movement, 
And, you know, the introduction of white collar workers who are increasingly, of course, distinguished by their education uh, also means that they are, you know, sort of functionally differentiated from what we traditionally thought of as the working class, a kind of industrial working or productivist working class. Um, and, you know, nowadays, I mean, people like Thomas Piketty are arguing that, you know, the real divide in society is between, uh, you know, essentially working class people of the old style, blue, blue collar, less educated people and more educated people. And this distinction between liberal and social democratic, I mean, I think to you is sort of self-evident, but I think in the United States, because we associate liberal with left uh, in a way that isn't necessarily the case in uh, in Europe, um, you know, these things kind of have a certain parallel track, right? The introduction of these population, more educated population groups and the uh, ideas of liberal and social democratic, um, you know, they sort of get mixed up and confused, I think, in certain ways. And so maybe you could speak to what's been going on in that regard. So there are a number of distinction that's distinctions that you've just raised let's uh, try to do at least a little justice to each of them I and mean, it's certainly true at the cultural level that working class people have never been uh, uh, avant-gardist whether the question is abortion or religion generally or uh, gender identity to name some contemporary questions uh, or modern art you know to name some older ones working class people are are not uh, by virtue perhaps of less cultural exposure, less education, are not uh, in the fore forefront of progressive cultural politics. Now, as to who the working class is, a lot of ink has been spilled on this. Of course, it is true that many blue collars have turned into pink collars, many blue collars have turned into white collars, and many blue collars have turned into polo shirts. So there's there's no question that um, the image of the lunchbox carrying miner or steel worker does not describe the contemporary labor market, let alone the contemporary population. So many socialists hoping and scholars hoping nevertheless to demonstrate the existence of a working class uh, majority in society have tried to deal with this. Eric Olin Wright, the late Eric Olin Wright uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison probably devoted more energy uh, and ink to this than almost anyone else and did as good a job as anyone can, could, uh, on describing how, in terms of incomes, lifestyles, educations, voting patterns, and it remains true, by the way, that uh, lower income level people do in the United States and in Europe vote more to the left than higher income people. That remains a true fact. Um, but what work like Eric Wright's have not been able to um, uh, overcome it, or or uh, uh, not been able to uh, uh, bring into harmony uh, is the old distinction, the very old distinction between uh, a class in itself, that is to say, a sociological uh, category, and a class for itself, a political category. So why working class people, whether defined by the uh, color of their color or their income, um, have not uh, 
produce the coherent uh, politics as the industrial economy has transformed into a post-industrial economy may have a lot to do with party structures, leadership, uh, cultural transformations, etc. So I, I, you know, I can't answer that question effectively. We know that recent efforts to do that, whether Aufstehen in Germany or uh, Podemos or Syriza, uh, in Spain and Greece have not uh, have not been successful. And we see in the United States that the most progressive segment of the Democratic Party, whether it's Bernie Sanders or AOC or or Ro Kahana uh, to shift from East Coast to West, um, that uh, very tenuous connection between Piketty's educated, liberal, enlightened Brahmins, as he calls them or us, uh, and core working class people. I mean, this is this was Bernie Sanders' central project, and it's the project of journals, uh, new journals today like Jacobin, uh, to uh, create this kind of demographic and political for itself constellation of uh, working class people in the classical sense and uh, enlightened uh, liberals. And one way to try to do that is to get away from these educated cultural uh, issues. Um, but there are people who, who um, care more about their pronouns than about the distribution of wealth in the United States. That's a tough coalition to build. Indeed. So, uh, I mean, this in a way brings us to the next question I wanted to ask, which really gets back to your earlier work, uh, which had to do with the creation of a social democratic welfare state in uh, interwar Europe, interwar Germany in particular. Um, and, you know, it turns out that the book is being reissued after its first publication 40 years ago. A few scholars have that kind of distinction. So I want to congratulate you, of course, on that uh, and ask you, you know, what is it about a book that, you know, had to do with the collapse of the Weimar Republic, a kind of liberal uh, progressive uh, foray of the Germans into, you know, the modern world that soon collapsed and led, of course, to the Nazi catastrophe. Uh, why is a book like that, you know, of interest to people? I mean, obviously, it says something about the context in which we now find ourselves. So what do you make of that? Well, the word fascism is uh, much in use these days. And whether it's uh, January 6th in the United States and, and what some people uh, call you know, Trump's beer hall putsch, his first effort as kind of seizure of power, um, or the general rise of right-wing populism in places like Hungary, Poland, uh, elsewhere, uh, India, uh, Israel, you can create a very long list depending on what you think the core uh, indices of fascism might be. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is that not only has the social democratic, uh, hegemonic social democratic uh, uh, constellation not only is that in the rearview mirror, but the neoliberal 
period that followed it, and here I think the United States is perhaps the best example, uh, the Republican Party discovered that in a democratic or putatively democratic political system, you cannot win elections with McCain's and Romney's and Bain Capital and more and more tax cuts and more and more uh, upward redistribution and privatization. That will not win elections. And what wins elections, it turns out, uh, for them is the Trumpian populism, which is, uh, you know, a devil's brew of, of um, protectionism, autarky, on paper, not in practice, um, uh, protectionism and autarky and reindustrialization combined with uh, racism and uh, belligerence uh, toward uh, liberal cultural values, something which uh, Governor DeSantis is now uh, refining uh, far beyond Trump's capacity to do so. So what the Republicans discovered is that um, neoliberalism, the mass base for neoliberalism is not what it was in the days of Reagan, when in a Cold War context uh, and uh, a still um, a, a still sound declining, but still sound manufacturing sector, uh, you could uh, uh, say things like, um, you know, government is, is get government off your back, right? A la Reagan. Uh, Trump wouldn't say that. Uh, Trump uh, would say the government's on the side of the wrong people. We've got to get government on the side of the right people. And you combine that with what are, in fact, conservative economic policies, tax cuts for the rich, the deregulation, not only in the environmental sector, in the labor sector, everywhere. Those are the standard conservative Republican policies, but with the populist sales pitch. And uh, that is also redolent of Weimar Germany. The conservative parties uh, kept shrinking through the 20s, um, and they could not win electoral majorities, and they thought a coalition with this lower middle class uh, party, the Nazi party, would bring them to power. And it did, only it didn't take long for them to discover that they had surrendered the right to rule in exchange for the right to keep making money. Now, what's different in the United States today is the place of uh, American capital. I mean, there is no threat from the left, right? There's certainly no Communist Party. There's no, you know, you can say that, uh, what number to put on it, it's hard to say. A quarter, maybe, of the Democratic Party is a social democratic party. The rest is a party of Wall Street and Hollywood and uh, not a party of working class whatsoever. So with maybe a quarter of the Democratic Party is a social democratic challenger, no Communist Party, uh, a uh, military dominance around the world, uh, the American economic elites aren't interested in fascism. Here I differ with people like Timothy Snyder who think that you know Trump is is just uh, you know a, 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 a Nazi wannabe or or a Mussolini wannabe. Um, I, I, I don't see it. Uh, folks in Italy, where the inheritors of the fascist party have never disappeared, they may have more reason to be concerned about this, partly because of the instability, Italy being famous for governments that don't have much of a half-life over the years, 
uh, and where the under different names, the fascist parties have never completely disappeared, may have more reason to be concerned. But even there, I think, you know, so much power in Europe resides in Brussels and the European Union and the European Central Bank and Frankfurt. We saw that, you know, what got rid of Berlusconi in the end was not any kind of left liberal upsurge in the Italian electorate, but the decision after the economic crisis of 2008-9 that Berlusconi had to go. So it was ultimately Brussels and Frankfurt that got rid of Berlusconi. So I think what's missing today from the fascist brew is an interest of the economic elites in having fascist government. They don't need to have it. So Orban is a is an authoritarian, but not a fascist. Yes, I think Orban basically. is a right-wing authoritarian. And notice that uh, he's not a neoliberal. I mean, he's not a socialist, but you know, he's not uh, a free marketeer. Um, likewise, Pish in Poland, you know, has expanded family grants and and uh, downward some not substantial, but some measure of downward economic redistribution. Uh, the United States Republican Party more or less stands out for its commitment to feeding the rich uh, and using culture to uh, get um, uh, voters to fall for it. So what about Germany? I mean, obviously, a number of people have been concerned about the uh, alternative for Germany and its significance and, you know, winning a significant number of, uh, of votes in the German parliament, seats in the German parliament. Uh, but you know, I mean, they've become nastier than they were when they started out, which was a kind of anti-Brussels uh, mm -hmm. party, apropos your comments about power lying in Brussels. Um, and then with the immigration or refugee crisis, so-called refugee crisis of 2015, um, you know, they took, took on a different coloration, but they don't seem to have a lot in the way of a kind of fascist uh, kind of coloration. But I'd be curious, obviously, what you would say about well, Germany. Well, no one wants to see a party that um, uh, describes Nazism as a mere uh, bird poop drop in German history and uh, criticizes uh, the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin as a uh, masochistic uh, monument uh, uh, to undermine legitimate German national sentiment. No one wants to see a party like that hit double digits, even if it's the low double digits. Uh, but their high tide was uh, in the anti-immigrant uh, reaction 2015-16, lasting into 2017-18, etc. Uh, they have um, they have twisted themselves into knots, uh, right? I mean, they, for example, are. Uh, the party most sympathetic to Russia in the Russo-Ukrainian war. Uh, it's very hard for um, a, a party that uh, denounced communism to suddenly uh, become Russophile, even if Putin is himself, uh, you know, distanced himself completely from the Soviet Union. I don't think, I think they've seen their day. I mean, they will be around uh, but I think they have seen their day. I don't think they're a serious threat uh, in in Germany. Their strength, it must also, we have to remind ourselves, was overwhelmingly in the former East Germany, where resentment at being treated as the 
poor primitive cousins of the sophisticated folks in West Berlin and Dusseldorf and Frankfurt uh, created a kind of spitefulness which led folks in the East. And here we could talk about different forms of coming to terms with the past. Communism in East Germany in some ways got rid of people who were actual Nazis, but never became kind of anti-nationalist in the way that West German culture became kind of anti-nationalist. So I think with the, the slow but steady economic revitalization of the East, the um, ground for uh, the alternative for Germany for the far-right neo-Nazis, et cetera, is probably stabilized and declining. So do I understand you correctly to be saying that, you know, uh, contemporary Germany is sort of not the is not the Weimar Republic. That is to say, it's grounding in you know liberal democratic civic nationalism, et cetera, et cetera. The various kinds of ideas that you've talked about in the course of this discussion now root it you know sufficiently strongly in shall we say democratic soil that that kind of collapse is not easily imaginable. It's not to say it's impossible, but I agree. Nothing is impossible, but I think the foundations of liberal democratic German state are, are very strong, and uh, the opponents of that state are are not many. I mean, there is there are other troublesome issues like whether a joint European defense system is possible, or if uh, what happens as the United States turns its attention to China and NATO. Uh, you know, it was Donald Trump who said, what do we need NATO for anymore if there's no more Soviet Union? I mean, that is a key issue in what we've seen in recent months is that uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war is in some way being used to bring our European NATO partners uh, to heal and to get them to spend more on defense and uh, become stauncher allies. Um, you know, at one point, many uh, on the left uh, we're seeing Europe as a kind of third way between communism and Anglo-American uh, brute capitalism. Uh, that hope or that possibility is probably gone. Uh, the Greens in Germany are not socialists. They are much more uh, like our progressives and uh, they are like their social democratic uh, colleagues. But being a system of proportional representation, it's possible for the two parties to run separately and then join a coalition together. In the United States, you could never do that. You could never have the Bernie Sanders party and the Wall Street party reach some kind of coalition agreement after the election. You know, it's one or the other. Uh, the Greens in Germany represent a non-social democratic enterprise that will change the character of Germany into a more post-industrial, post-modern uh, party like uh, like um, Piketty's uh, Brahmin liberals, and where that will leave uh, uh, a shrinking social democratic party in Germany remains to be seen, but I don't see a fascist outcome to that evolution. 
Right. Well, let's thank God for small favors, as my mother used to say. So that's it for today's episode. I want to thank David Abraham for sharing his insights about social democracy and welfare states in 20th century Europe and beyond. Look for us uh, on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.